Hello, uh, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, we're still um, working our way through The Whisperer in Darkness, which was uh, written in uh, 1930 and uh, published in um, 1931. So it's, it's really, I think, a breakout story for Lovecraft that kind of moves his fiction into into really a new level of world building. It's really where we start to actually be able to conceive of a mythos in all of this work. He connects to different gods in a much more coherent way. He does much more in trying to create a cosmic geography here um, and actually moves beyond just the New England geography we've been talking a lot about and moving into Vermont and uh, the Himalayas are mentioned and you get this idea of a kind of a global uh, experience uh, under the surface of the of the events of this of the story, so in the first two episodes we talked about chapters one through five of the Whisper in Darkness, which basically deal with uh, our our main character, uh, Professor Wilmarth of Miskatonic University, a professor of folklore and literature, who uh, was investigating reports of strange creatures in in Vermont uh, after a flood. Uh, he starts trying to debunk them and try to understand them in the context of folklore when he gets letters from this guy, Henry Akeley in Vermont, who says, no, 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 you're wrong. This stuff is real and I have the evidence. And then they start to exchange evidence. Um, after that, Akeley starts to be under the attack of these creatures that that seem to exist, not just in Vermont, but kind of all over the world doing various things. I think in, in Vermont, they're kind of it's, it's suggested they're mining for materials for their, their kind of empire. They're from Yugoth, which is like the newly discovered ninth planet. Um, but that's just like an outpost of their larger cosmic presence. Kind of like uh, the Ithians in that way, having a much broader um, cosmic presence, but their position, their, their center on Earth just for curiosity or for some need. It's just, it's just a, it's just a thumbnail of their whole presence. Uh, he starts to be attacked by them and his and the local uh, kind of allies of these creatures, which are just going to call the Migo, um, who, you know, kind of have recruited a lot of like the local backwoods people to be as be as allies, which is a nice, very Lovecraftian uh, uh, theme here. Uh, we saw this all the way back in uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep where you have that same kind of suggestion of a special relationship between cosmic other forces and and these backwoods people. And of course, you saw it in Dunwich, the Dunwich Horror. You see it in Innsmouth later on. So it's something that runs through a lot of Lovecraft's work, and it's just hinted at here, but it's there. Um, so Akeley's sending these letters back to him saying, don't come, it's dangerous, I'm thinking of leaving. And eventually he gets a letter saying, oh, I was wrong. I sat down to talk with them, and it turns out they're really chill. And they just want to be our buddies, and we totally misunderstood them. And and here, come, bring the evidence I gathered and gave you, you know, and we'll talk about it, and you can meet them yourself. And, of course, Wilmarth, who by this point in the story has believed what Akeley is saying to be true because of the evidence that's been provided. He's a scientist. Um, so he, he doesn't disregard this evidence, things like footprints, a, a, a phonograph that, that Akeley recorded out in the woods like 10 years earlier. Um, all this different evidence basically convinces him of the truth of Aqueous account. And this sudden change in his tone uh, leads him, through curiosity, to want to seek him out. So he agrees to go up to Vermont, and that's where the story picks up in Chapter 6. So Chapter 6, 
So the rest of the story really deals with this experience at a police farm in Vermont and his encounter with the, the Migo and their technology. He doesn't actually experience the Migo directly, um, except it's hinted at maybe uh, one under kind of under some kind of disguise. But he does actually like see them physically. Um, but he does see their technology and hears their stories and, and, and sees what they're capable of in part. So chapter six is basically focusing on the travel to Akeley's house. And it's a fairly long chapter for a, I mean, it's a long story. But even within that, this is a fairly uh, significant chapter, I think eight or nine pages. And it really focuses on this travel to Vermont. It's really, really important for Lovecraft, who is a traveler. We've been talking about his letters. Uh, and in his letters, again and again, we see how when he travels, when he goes to different places, he is he sees those as different worlds. He sees those as even in different times. Uh, and for him, there's a kind of a component of time travel in just regular travel, right? Which is something I kind of regret not experiencing myself, right? Maybe it's just because we're in this modern world where everything's kind of homogenized and flattened and, and the same uh, across many cultures. But, you know, when, when Lovecraft talked about going to Quebec, which of course is a trip is around this time, right? He's influenced by a trip he took to Vermont, but he also took a trip to Quebec around the time of the writing of this story. And there he, you know, he thought he was really traveling back to this, you know, to before the Seven Years' War, before Canada became Anglo. And he saw that, you know, Quebec is really a, a place out of time. And so to go there is to travel throughout time. Um, and you get this experience in this. So I really like this chapter in its sense of its, its discussion of modernity, its discussion of, of the changes in the New England landscape, but also how it's still an element of, of time travels involved here. Listen to this. Quote, I knew I was entering an altogether older fashion and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized, coastal and southern areas where all my life had been spent. An unspoiled ancestral New England without the foreigners and factory smoke, billboards and concrete roads and the sections which modernity has touched. There would be odd survivals of that continuous native life. The deep roots make it the one authentic outgrowth of the landscape. The continuous native life which keeps alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy, marvelous, and seldom mentioned belief. Now and then I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield we crossed it, ahead loomed green and cryptical hills. And when the conductor came around and learned that I was at last in Vermont, he told me to set my watch back an hour since the northern hill countries will have no dealings with the newfangled daylight uh, time schemes. As I did, so it seemed to me that I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. So these are a really great couple paragraphs where you even get this element of the of the time change, right? Because they're not on the daylight savings time, which is it's kind of funny, but it also symbolizes this going back in time to a, to a pre-modern world, a world governed by the times of, of the seasons and the cycles of, of nature. So a really, really great opening to this chapter. So um, after he arrives, he's introduced to uh, Mr. Noise when he gets to Battleboro. He's introduced to Mr. Noise because Akeley lives like in the woods. Like Battleboro's is the closest town to where he lives. He's actually out in the woods, right, out in the rural areas. So Battleboro's the closest you can get. And there he's met by this Mr. Noise, who's kind of like the, the gopher for the Migo in interacting with the humans, it seems. He's one of these backcountry folk who's been um, taken over. Maybe it's Amigo in disguise. I'm not quite sure. I don't think so. I think it's meant to be one of these um, local people that have been sort of drafted by the, the Migo as their servants. 
at least that I think works better in Lovecraft's overall conception of this relationship between the working class and these other forces out there in the universe. Um, and then when we're introduced to Battleboro, though, even Battleboro is presented as an ancient place, as an antique primordial land. Um, quote, it drows like the older New England cities, which one members from boyhood. And sometimes in the collocation of roofs and steeples and chimneys and brick walls formed contours, touching deep-seated vile strings of ancient emotion. I could tell that if I was at the gateway of a region half of which through the pilgrimage of unbroken time accumulations, a region where old strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they have never been stirred up. As we passed out of Battleboro, my sense of constraint and foreboding increased for a vague qual quality of the hill crown countryside with its towering, threatening, close-pressing green and granite slopes hinted at the obscure secrets and immemorial survivals which might or might not be hostile to mankind. Which again, I think is a great summation of just what this whole story really is about in the, in the end. Now at the same time, Wilmarth is kind of in awe of this experience, this, this kind of time traveling experience that he's going on, just traveling through the landscape. But even so, he never stops being a scientist and a professor and um, you know, interested in the folklore, interested in the, the setting, but also kind of with this evidence, right? That he's pursuing hard evidence of something that's happening. The footprints, the recording, the, the black stone, which he never got, that was intercepted by the Migos, but that was the other piece of evidence that um, was left behind. Now, in this, I think it's because of his folklore studies. Wilmarth feels this kind of com familiarity, he calls it, with this environment and with what he sees. That is, although it seems new to him on the surface level of his mind, under the surface, it's something familiar to him. It's something that's coming out of his own ex uh, memories, his deeper memories. Maybe it's some kind of collective subconscious, but I think it's more just his awareness. Maybe as a New Englander, you know, someone like how, the way how Lovecraft always thinks he's in the 18th century, right? Like it's somehow rooted in his DNA. Wilmarth is, is having these same kind of experiences. Wilmarth very much is a, is a character that's, I think, drawn a lot from Lovecraft's own Anxieties. His very scientific mind, but his interest in folklore, his skepticism, but his curiosity—it's—it's it's all there, right? But all this does make the experience more and more bizarre to him. Um, and you know, he's got this weird guy noise who's a bit odd, who asks very strange questions. That um, you know, it's not just a friendly conversation he's having during this drive, um, but also the whole experience is a bit off-putting to him. Um, and he says, my feelings of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again, now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid, beleagueringly described so hauntingly in Akeley's letter. And I honestly dreaded the coming discussions, which were to link me with such an alien and forbidden worlds. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is often more terrifying than inspiring. And it did not cheer me to think that this bit of dusty road was the place where these monstrous tracks and that fetid green ichor had been found in the moonless night's of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold them as soon as all the outer ones made peace with them? Peace, peace with him? End quote. Yeah, it seems they got rid of the dogs. Now, the dogs being an enemy of these external forces is a common theme, right? Uh, Wilbur Watley is killed by dogs, right, in, in Arkham when he was trying to steal the Necronomicon from Miskatonic University Library. 
anyways, it's not just this this kind of evidence of their actual presence. It actually starts to see the footprints that Akeley was talked about. It's one of the cl- cl- clear pieces of evidence he has of these Migo because the Migo, when they die, their bodies dissolve. And so there's no record of them. He can't even take photographs of them. Um, you know, it's not quite... Wilmar doesn't fully believe that that's true. He just doesn't have a photo of them because uh, Akeley never took it. Um, so anyways, the, chapter six here is, is really a nice chapter, I think. It's, it's, it's maybe to readers just wanting to get to the exciting drama of the end of the story and the climax might find this section a little bit more uh, banal. But I think there's a lot of interesting kind of themes going on in this. It's really about setting the mood of this experience of going back in time, but also going into the bizarre and really entering in, you know, going from the safety, uh, relative safety of a place like Arkham to this utterly bizarre, out-of-time, primordial, like ancient place where where things have been going on here for centuries or for thousands of years, maybe even before humans have arrived, that humans have yet to fully understand. And I think Lovecraft does a good job of, of having us experience that transition. So um, then we have chapter seven. This is a long chapter. This one, I... In my notes, I, I just said this chapter is Akeley's story. Akeley in qu- quotation marks story. Um, now, the first thing when he... So he, this is when he finally enters Akeley's homestead. And his home. And it's it's a weird place. Like, it's dark. It's... Uh, Akeley looks decrepit. He looks like he, he can't really walk properly. He looks kind of fetid and... kind of like sick and pale and, and just off uh, quote. But I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety for certainly this face was that of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more than Adam behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression and unwinking glassy stare. And realized how terribly the strain of the frightful experiences must have told on him. Was it not enough to break any human being, even a younger man in this intrepid delver into the forbidden? The stranger's sudden relief, I fear, had come too late to save him from something like a general breakdown. So his explanation for this is just he's those all those nightly attacks by the Migo, the whole experience with the dogs and the threats and the lost packages. All that just drove him kind of around the bend. And these are just the physical manifestations of it. Um, but the poor state of Akeley actually has a deeper explanation, as we see by the end of the story. That's the whole point of the tale, right, when you get to the end of it. But he's really weird too. He's just like, oh, make yourself at home. There's food for you. I, I must. I'm much. I'm very weary. I must go to sleep. Um, but he does say a few things. He says like, well, Einstein's wrong about uh, you know things traveling faster than light speed. Things can travel faster than light. There are, um, you know, there's much more beyond human experience and science and philosophy has ever known. New worlds have been opened up to me and they'll be opened up to you and you just got to wait till the morning when you will you'll experience these things and he goes into some detail here uh, before he kind of sends uh wilmarth off to sleep um he said you know or just get away he says he's going to go to sleep right he's going to rest i think um but he does tell him some things like uh how yugoth this newly discovered planet is actually uh a whole developed civilization with cities of black stone, like the black stone that he tried to send him. Um, there's 
uh, but this is just a, again a fingernail of this broader civilization that these these beings inhabit. And he says, "Well, I'm going to go there, and you can go there, and this is just the first step of a journey. So going to Yugoth is just the first step of a larger journey." Oh. What else do we have here? Oh yeah, the description of it. You know, he's saying, "Oh, the, this is this is great stuff. It's a wonderful place. You can't be afraid of it." It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, but he also, we see him here, we see through Akeley's, quote-unquote Akeley's uh, explanation and story, say that, or show how this is all connected to the broader mythos of, of Lovecraft's writings. It says, It is only to us that it would seem so. Probably this world seemed just as terrible to the beings when they first explored it in the primal age. You know, know they were here long before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over. And remember all about the sunken relay, windows above the waters? They have been inside the earth too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of, some of them in the very Vermont hills, the great worlds of unknown life down there, blue-litten Cayenne, red-litten Yoth, and the black-lightless Nakai. It is from Nakai that frightened Sagwa came, you know, from amorphous toad-like guy creatures mentioned in the Panoptic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon, and the Kamalorian myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clark Ashton. So he's putting a lot together here. He's, of course, name drops Clark Ashton. He spells Clark Ashton Smith's name exactly this way in his letters often. So he's pulling from his stories. He's pulling, I think, from some of Long's stories. There might be a little bit of uh, some Howard stuff here, too, or maybe Howard incorporates this stuff later. Uh, Yoth... Uh, Where's that from? Kinyan is from uh, the mound, which Lovecraft wrote uh, for uh, Zelia Bishop. Um, of course, Cthulhu. Th this I, this mention here of Cthulhu of sunken rail rising being above waters is that a reference to something from the Necronomicon, some kind of historical account, or the experiences of, of whatever it was, 1920, 1921, or whenever. That happened in the Call of Cthulhu, right? I think that was like the early 20s. That seemed not to be popularly known. It's not something Woolmarth would have just known as an, as an educated person or Akeley. Maybe it's not meant to. Maybe it's just something that these creatures know. And Woolmarth really doesn't know anything about this. But it's something they know about. And they're able to kind of presume that knowledge of him. But the way it's discussed, though, it's like, oh, you must know all this stuff, too. But some of it's in the Necronomicon, the Panoptic Manuscripts, first mentioned, I think, in Polaris. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of effort at world building here, right? Connecting all these things into one mythology. So anyways, at this part in the story, uh, he goes to eat. He eats his lunch. Akeley doesn't eat. Um, making some excuse. My wife doesn't want to eat. He's uh, too weary. He can't get out of the chair or whatever. Um, he... Washes the dishes like a good guest, then retires back into uh, into the main room with Akeley. Um, now there's we're we're told here that there was more in those earlier letters that Akeley wrote that weren't included in the text. It says like um, there were some of the things in Akeley's letter, especially the second and most voluminous one, which I would dare not quote from or even form into words 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 on paper. Um, end quote. But then Akeley starts to say more. And building off of these things about Cthulhu, about uh, Yig, Hounds of Tindalus, again, building up, doing all this world building. Connecting to all this other weird fiction writers in his own work, 
mentioning Asatoth and the Necronomicon, and seeing these outer ones. So this is the term Akeley uses for these these Migo, which is just calling them the outer ones. Maybe that's the proper term we should be using for them. He talks about the Black Stone, uh, and and all of this, and it's so profound and amazing. And Wilmarth is a little bit taken aback at just how almost casual Akeley is about it. Quote, my guess about those hieroglyphics have been all too correct, and yet Akeley now seemed reconciled to the whole fiendish system he had stumbled upon, reconciled and eager to pull farther into the monstrous abyss. I wonder what beings he had talked to since his last letter to me, and whether many of them had been as human as the first emissary he had mentioned. The tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about the queer, persistent odor and those insidious hints of vibration in the darkened room. Now, as um, now under the light, now as it gets dark, so they talk all day. They talk from lunchtime till dark, and this is still like September, so still pretty long day. Uh, so they talk a very, very long time until it starts to get dark, um, and then he starts to, under the the natural or the the unnatural light, the electronic light or whatever they have in the house. No, it's an oil lamp. So under this oil lamp, uh, he starts to look abnormal and corpse-like. He's described as looking corpse-like. He seemed half incapable of motion, Lovecraft writes, though I could see him nod stiffly once in a while. Um, and and there's something that Akeley said that freaks him out a little bit because Akeley said something about how complete human bodies can't make this trip. You can't go as just a, as a human being, you know, so if Akeley did take this trip, then he didn't go as a complete person. And, and so what is this person in front of me? So this is the first hint that Wilmarth seems to think that maybe there's something really not human about this version of Akeley that's, that's in front of him. So at this point, uh, Akeley brings him before this machine, this technology. So now it really becomes a straight up like science fiction tale with this wonderful technological device that he's that, that he's exposed to. And he explains to him how these travels take place, that they actually take your brain out, and there's some way for these outer ones to take their brain out, and, and you can then th transmit your consciousness into some other form and then experience Yugoth or anywhere else in these, uh, this, this empire that, that they're, they're part of. So that's how they can travel. They travel by taking out your brain and switching the brain with something else through this machinery. So then Akeley takes him, you know, to show him these machines that these outer ones are using. Now, um, there's actually this kind of moment where Wilmer starts to think that maybe I got this wrong. Maybe it's it's not so much about these outer ones. It's actually Akeley, some kind of weird man scientist, who's actually making some kind of weird device. And he's kind of, kind of got nutty, um, which I think is kind of a, a fun little level of it, right? Because if you just get this letter from this guy Akeley saying, you're wrong, the Mikos are real. If you, like if I write a paper about the cultural phenomenon of, of aliens and someone writes to me and say no 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 i know aliens are real i was abducted i'll think that guy is just a nut right and if he provides evidence i think oh that's kind of intriguing and interesting i investigate and i go over to his house and it turns out he has like he's been building a ufo and then i might just think he's like you know a different kind of crazy person right walmart sort of has this experience for a moment um but anyways now we get to 
this machine starts talking to him though because there's some kind of consciousness in this machine one of these travelers in this machine um, a human like him and he starts to communicate to him and tell him about what these travels entail and so we get a couple pages of his description of what it's like what one goes through um, I'll give you a little taste of this do you realize what it means when I say I've been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects, including eight outside our galaxy and two outside the curved cosmos of space and time? All this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by visions so erudite that it would be crude to call operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods which make these extravations easy and almost normal. And one's body never ages when the brain is out of it. The brain, I may add, is virtually immortal with its mecha mechanical faculties and its limited nourishment supplies by the occasional changes in the preserving fluid. So there's even the promise of immortality here, which I suppose reminds us of the promise made by the, by, uh, the Deep Ones in the Shadow of Rainsmouth. There's also a promise of immortality, and it's hinted at, I think, in At the Mountains of Madness too, of, of the possibility of a long life through this. The Ithians allow you to experience whole other existences as well. Um, so after all this, Wilmarth starts to feel a bit of disgust uh, with Akeley. Um, just because him knowing all this stuff, uh, I guess, makes him feel... It's kind of just a feeling he gets. It's like everything altogether, the technology, the, the changes in Akeley's personality, his odd behavior, his odd look, all together kind of makes him feel, I don't want to be here anymore. This is too freaky. And this Akeley is, it's, it's messed up, right? Quote, I now found that he filled me with a distinctive repulsion. His illness ought to have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert in corpse life, and, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and inhuman. End quote. I don't think this is the first time this term whisperer is mentioned, but the whisperer in darkness is this, this quote-unquote Akeley, um, because he sees him in darkness, and he sees that form, and he speaks through these whispers. Right? He doesn't speak like a normal human would speak in conversation. So he's the whisperer in darkness. That's where the title comes from. Um, but anyways, he just says, I'm not going to spend any more time in this house. I am out of here, right? And then it's just about how he can escape. It's, it's very much like that moment in Shadow of Rainsmouth where the character decides, I just got to leave this town. After investigating for a while, you get to a certain point, and you're like, no, nah, I have to get out of here. I have to leave. Um, and that's what Chapter 8 is really about. It's, it brings us to Akeley's escape. So I'll just kind of get through the end of the story pretty quick. Uh, I don't think there's too much more interesting to, to talk about. It's just about, well, th there's one weird thing is he, he kind of sleeps for a while. He's decided to leave, but he still kind of sleeps for a while instead of just leaves immediately. But when he wakes up, he finds all the evidence that he's prepared gone, right? They've already collected that and, and did whatever they did with it. So now there's going to be the element of doubt that overhangs Wilmart. So Wilmart now becomes the crazy kook, in a sense. If he had had the evidence, he could show others, but he doesn't have that anymore. All he has is the story he's writing to us, right? And his, his claim that he's recounted these letters with his endemic memory, endemic memory. You know, but actually Wilmart be 
kind of becomes the the nut at the, you know which i think is kind of a nice twist in the story too you know because Aigley's long gone and there's not going to be any evidence of him and all the evidence he provided has been collected and taken away um, um but there's a lot actually of of flash no flash forward here where he, where he kind of says now, after this i did try to tell people about the story i made inquiries into akeley into akeley's family i tried to see what evidence i could find any other reports about sounds or weird happenings around the akeley house he even investigates uh pluto uh so we get the name pluto instead of Yugoth here for it for this ninth planet so he did try to find some new evidence to make up for the evidence that he lost but without any luck then we return back to the akeley house in you know in the chronological uh, chain of events um where he starts to hear voices and this is what leads him to to rapidly want to flee this house um now the voices he hears are he hears noise talking with uh buzzing sounds and the speech machine so we have the buzzing sounds, which seem to be the Migo and their natural uh, voice. We have Noise, who's this gopher. Um, and we have the speech machine, which she was talking to before, right? This being who's been traveling, right? Uh, it's not clear that any of these are, are Akeley. Quote, I did not hear the familiar whisper of Akeley, but knew well that such a sound could never penetrate the solid flooring of the ro- in my rooms. So he's hearing through the floors from the other room. He's hearing... Um, you know, discussion about the records, but also Nyarlathotep is mentioned here. Uh, um, you know, it's all broken because he doesn't hear all of it. He just hears little pieces of it, just little pieces. It's all really um, ominous. And then he hears more footsteps, like there's more people there than he's hearing noises from. And it's all really, um, you know, obviously disarming for him. So he decides then to act and to flee the house. But he never fully loses his curiosity. Um, Lovecraft writes, Just what to think or what to do was more than I could decide. After all, what had I heard beyond things which previous information might have led me to expect? Had I not known that the nameless outsiders were now freely admitted to the farmhouse? No doubt Akeley had been surprised by the unexpected visit from them. Yet something in that fragmentary discourse had chilled me immensely, raised the most grotesque and horrid, horrible doubts, and made me wish fervently that I might wake up and prove everything a dream. I think my subconscious mind might have caught something which my consciousness had not yet recognized. But what of Akeley? Was he not my friend? And would he not have protested if any harm were meant to me? End quote. So he thinks he might owe something to Akeley. He still thinks maybe it's not that dangerous. Maybe, you know, it's not that surprising that there's Migo walking around the house or uh, these outer ones walking around the house because that's what you'd expect. But nevertheless, he's totally uh, freaked out by this. So now the final scene of the story, uh, if you read it, it's pretty famous. Uh, it's not the scariest thing ever. Um, it's kind of obvious. And when you read that, read, especially you know, when you go back and look at what's been set up. But basically, he goes back to the place he's been talking to Akeley. You know, at the in that living room, you know, with the, where, where they were kind of sitting across from each other talking all day where he's telling the story and all that's there on the chair is a mask, an Akeley mask and Akeley kind of hands, right? It's like the, the fake face and the fake gloves that was using to pretend to be human. So it was an outer one, right? Uh, or some other being that was telling him this 
tale this whole time. So whatever happened to Akeley, who knows? Is he off on Yugoth? Is he dead? It's, it's not clear. But that's what he saw, right? And this is how the story ends. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps to attach them to organic developments, which I dare not form any conjecture. I hope, devoutly hope, that they were the waxen products of a master artist, despite what my innermost fears tell me. Great God, the whisper in darkness with its morbid odor and vibrations. Sorcerer, emissary, changeling, outsider, that hideous repressed buzzing, and all that time and that fresh shiny cylinder on the shelf. Poor devil, prodigious surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill. For the things in that chair, perfect to the last, subtle detail of microscopic resemblance or identity, were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Akeley. How he would know that, I'm not sure. Um, it's something that bothered me when I read the story the last time. Is it, did he ever see a picture of Akeley? He just got the letters from him. So the first time he sees Akeley is with this, is this creature wearing this Akeley mask. So... How would he know? Maybe did Akeley ever send him a picture? Um, I don't know. But that aside, it's a pretty good ending for the story. We know he escapes after this, and we knows he tries to dig up some new evidence, but fails to, and all he can do is, is tell us this story. So anyways, that's the events of, of Lisper and Darkness. I think there's a few minor things I kind of skipped over. Um, some good elements, some, some good moments here. But it's a really interesting tale of like how it goes from this folklore and the supernatural to the science. That's what I think is really striking about this story. Um, at the Mountains of Madness, it's the other way. You start with science and investigation and a, just straight up scientific exploration. And you end up in, in the folklore and mythology. Right, Shadow over Innsmouth is, I guess, is a bit of a mix of that. Um, yeah, but I think these two stories almost work as mirror images of each other, in in, in that sense, um, because in this story, our narrator is a folklorist. He's a literature person, right? But he's still very scientifically minded, and he's still convinced by evidence. Um, but when he sees it, what he sees at the end, you know, is beyond his ability to really make sense of because it's, it's such a higher level of science and chemistry and biology, physics, right? It's, it's, he's outside of his pay grade by the, by the end of the story. And that helps contribute to this uneasiness of it, right? Um, but it's clearly technological. It's not, it's not magic, it, it seems. It seems it's grounded in, in reality. But for our narrator, this is part of the uncanniness of it, I guess. Um, so that's, uh, a, I think, a great element of it. But I, I still think, um, you know, back to my first episode on The Whisper in Darkness, that's what really makes me love this story so much is that meditation on, on vernacular traditions of the folklore and how someone trying to piece together this folklore and trying to make sense of it and trying to understand it as a cultural phenomenon or understand it as a... Uh, some like the Jungian kind of subconscious, collective subconscious, or understanding it as different reflections on historical events or whatever. That's what folklorists do, right? You try to understand why people gravitate to certain stories, why they're attracted to, by certain stories. And, and that's what Wilmarth is. And then he gets drawn into this conspiracy through these letters from Akeley and becomes convinced of this 
And I, I just think that's a great character arc for it. It's, it's not that common we get really clear character arcs in, in Lovecraft stories, but this is one that has it, a really, really strong character arc where someone goes from being a skeptic to a believer to a doubt, to doubting to finally total fear and panic and, and terror at the end. So I like that. Um, you know, I'm not as interested in maybe some of these cosmic elements of it all. I, I think that's... But it's not really necessary for the story, actually, that you know all details of how Cthulhu is related to the Elder Ones and, and you know who was at war with who and what time. You get some of this at the Mountains of Madness, too. That's not as important, I think, for uh, as it is. Just this experience of, of entering into a world you know, kind of outside of time. This primordial world that's also got these high-tech elements. That's a really cool element of the story, too. How, you know, it seems these things have been here forever with this technology, right? This technology's always been with us. It's, it's really like an X-Files episode, right? Where, um, you know, Mulder and Scully dig down and they find a spaceship buried under the Antarctic ice or whatever. Um, yeah, I think this is the most X-File-ish of all the stories, isn't it? Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Color of Space has elements of that too. But this has that in the, the, this investigator and the doubt angle and the technology elements. I think it works. I think it, this story really, really works really well. Um, so I guess that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, I've been talking enough about this Toler story, I guess. Um, I thought I'd have a little bit more to say, though. But it's fine. Um, all right. I guess that's it. Next up, I'll be doing At the Mountains of Madness. I don't remember what I wrote down. I, I think I have this all planned out. I think I'm going to do four episodes on At the Mountains of Madness. Maybe five. Let me think. How many chapters of it? It's 12 chapters, I think. 12 chapters. So, yeah, that makes sense to do four, four episodes on that one. Um, a lot of... Uh, this is his longest published tale, by the way, right? Um, published quite... I think it's the... One of the last he published, it wasn't published until 1936, but it was written um, just after The Whisper in Darkness in early 1931. We've already talked about it in his letters a little bit. So this is, of course, a very famous tale and um, a wonderful story of exploration. It's very much like The Mound. We'll get to The Mound later. This is, I guess, uh, maybe I should have done The Mound first in, in hindsight because The Mound almost works as a kind of a first draft. Of this. this is a better tale than the mound, I think, but you know the the mound has great elements too. I think the whole the the primordial civilization of the mound is actually a little bit more interesting in some ways than at the Mount of Madness. But the elder things and the Shagas have their own elements. That, you know, like the slavery master dynamic is, of course, something that's it's there in the mound too. I guess so. They, they both deal with slavery. They both kind of deal with race issues. Uh, they both, this one's more science-based, I guess. I guess that's one big difference between them. Um, we start from the very first line, science, right, is, is in the first line of the story. Um, yeah, it does kind of work as an inverse of it. So we'll, anyways, we'll do four episodes on At the Mountains of Madness. And we'll see how, you know, and then Shadow Over Innsmouth after that. So for the next seven episodes, at least... We'll be looking at uh, these these two stories, Shadow Over Innsmouth and the Mountains of Madness. In the meantime, uh, let me know if you have any thoughts about the Whisper in Darkness. Um, send me a 
send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You should know there is a movie uh, that's been uh, produced by the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Historical Society, I guess. They made it. They, they did a version of Call of Cthulhu, like a black and white silent film. Whisper in Darkness is a black and white film as well, but it's not, it's not, it's not um, silent. Um, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's pretty faithful to the original text. So um, they add a little bit of an element. They, they do actually do make it more. They kind of emphasize more, the, I think, the conspiracy aspect of it and kind of the, the doubt. It, it does, even with the, they even take the X-Files that element a little bit further in, the, in that film, as I recall. So you might want to check that out. I'm not going to review it, but, you know, I give you, it's, I recommend it. Um, I think that's the only adaptation of the Whisper in Darkness that I know of. But there's, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's been radio adaptations too, but film ones, that's the only one I know of. So check that out if you want. Um, I'm not going to review it in this podcast. So that's it. So send me what you send, send me your thoughts at my email, 100pagescast at gmail.com, uh, or leave a review on iTunes, or just leave a comment on the podcast, or just reach me on Twitter. There's a lot of ways to reach me. So, um, yeah, that'll be it for now. So uh, thanks, as always, for listening. I'll see you next time as we jump into At the Mountains of Madness. Looking forward to it.